0: Today's reading is from Luke 2, 25 through 40. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Uh, Good morning, church. Hey, I'll take it. Uh, My name is Matthew Watson. I serve as the pastor here at Christ City uh, Church, and there's one thing that I just uh, want to address here before we get going. Just a, a matter of, of housekeeping. Um, at Christ City, our um, our fiscal year uh, begins on July 1, so it means that we're coming to the end of our fiscal year. If Christ City is your is your home church, uh, and you would like to give a fiscal year end gift, then uh, this week would be a great time to do it. it allows us to finish out this fiscal year in a really uh, in a place of financial strength. So, just wanted to alert you to that. Um, I uh, I, uh, welcome, if if you've been here for a while or if this is your first time, uh, welcome to Christ City. Uh, The the place that we're in right now is uh, Minor Elementary School. I uh, don't know if you know that. There was a big sign out of the front. Uh, you may have kind of missed it coming in. The school is actually named after Martilla Minor. Uh, Martilla Minor was a, an abolitionist. Originally from uh, New York, uh, was, uh, lived in the uh, mid to late 1800s, and she uh, was influenced early on by the uh, Brethren denomination, a denomination that was ever and always at the forefront of the abolitionist movement. And that shaped uh, uh, Miner's uh, worldview and her understanding of humanity and of justice. She taught uh, a school in Mississippi in the 1840s, and she saw firsthand the horrors of of slavery and the weight of oppression that was resting upon uh, African Americans at that time. And she uh, grew in her commitment to educating uh, African Americans, who she believed would teach future generations and the formerly enslaved the most about what it meant to live in freedom. So she moved to Washington, DC, and she set up, and she opened a school for colored girls in December of 1851 with six pupils crammed into a 14-foot square room in a home at 11th Street and New York Avenue. And from that point, began to educate African-Americans in Washington, DC. She picked DC because it was uh, sort of the northernmost southern city where freed slaves would land. And she said, let me be there in that place. Um, it is, uh, it is really a tremendous honor uh, for us as Christ City to, to worship in this place, to come into this school uh, with this history, and to steward that as much as God would give us favor. In many ways, Minor is, is quite an unlikely hero. She was not a very uh, big woman, or she was frail much of her life and got um, tragically sick at the end of her life. She was an unlikely hero in a lot of ways, but it was this this strength of character and constitution, this understanding that um, uh, when God created people, that he created everyone, regardless of what we look like in God's image. And so it was motivation out of that to say, let me educate people, all people. And so it's 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 really a joy and a treasure for us to worship each and every Sunday in this uh, in this school that was named after this unlikely hero. Um, it's right for us to remember her work. It's right for us to be inspired by it. It's it's right for us to even ask ourselves: uh, In what ways does Martilla Miner's life and words and work need to find expression in our own lives? The thing is, we've been asking similar questions of that as that over the past month as we've been exploring different women in the Bible and walking through our sermon series called Etzer. Um, Etzer, the, the title of our series comes from the name that God uses to describe Eve in the book of Genesis. It's in the story of creation in Genesis chapter 2, where God uh, created the world, He created the land and the sea, He created the animals and the birds, the night and day, and He created Adam, the first man. But He realizes that it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so, uh, in, in the story, in, Genesis 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for him, for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. It's this phrase, helper suitable, uh, or in another verse it says a suitable helper that we've seized upon for the name of our series. It's in the original language of the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, the phrase is edzer konegdo, and it just means helper suitable. The word etzer here, translated as helper, it's been used at different times to locate women in a subversive position to men because of our misunderstanding of the word helper. However, as we explained in the opening sermon uh, on Eve, that's not the most faithful nor accurate understanding of the word etzer. We noted that the word etzer was used 21 times in the Old Testament, and the vast majority of those times, 16 times in fact, it's used to describe God as the etzer to his people. God is the helper in our times of trouble. God is our etzer in our moment of need. God is the helper who rescues us from the enemy, who secures our salvation, who rests our deliverance from the evil one. And it is through this lens of etzer, the lens of women who reflect the strong help that comes from God, it is through this lens that we have sought to look. throughout these weeks, we've lifted up stories of women in the scriptures who, through their help, who through their etzering, uh, I, I think... Just go with me there. Through They're through their helping. Um, they, they defend, they champion their people. And most especially, appoint us all towards the God who is our ultimate etzer in times of need. This is precisely what Martilla Minor did. She etzered people. She, and she still etzers us all with her history and her legacy. In the series, we've looked at four women in the Old Testament, and now we're going to turn our attention to women in the New Testament. We've looked at Eve and Hagar and Rizpah and Deborah, all women in the Old Testament, women of faith and of courage, women whose stories ought, ought to stir our hearts and our affections and our devotion for God. And this week, uh, we begin the second half of our series, and we look uh, to the New Testament. We'll look at Mary, Jesus' mother. We will look at the story of an unnamed Syro Phoenician woman. We will lift up Lydia's story, a businesswoman who nurtured the early church in the city of Philippi. And today I want to turn our attention to Anna. Anna's story uh, is a whopping three verses long. Not a lot for me to work with on this one, but, uh, but I'm not scared. So in terms of screen time, there's just not a lot there for Anna. But within these three verses, there is packed information and inspiration and lessons from which we can draw. So before we uh, look at the text, a couple of preliminary notes uh, about this. Um, Often, when the church celebrates Anna or uh, uh, preaches on Anna, they do so alongside her counterpart, Simeon. Uh, Anna's story takes place with Simeon's, uh, and so often they're preached and and discussed together. Um, Many times when Anna's, uh, or Simeon's uh, for that matter, whenever their story is told, it's often told at Advent, um, during Christmas. Uh, Because it's a story that is interwoven with the anticipation of the arrival of Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And hopefully that that, that helps us locate Anna's story in the Bible and in Christian tradition. So let's look at uh, Luke 2, beginning in verse 36. It was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God. Coming up to uh, Joseph and Mary and Simeon. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna is introduced just straightway as a prophet. Verse 36, there was also a prophet, Anna. Now, uh, there can be some wild ideas about what prophets are and what prophecy is. And there are some images <laughs> that can be conjured up when I say prophets or prophecy, where you're like, oh, like fortune tellers and like glass balls and palm readers. Like we just get sort of these images of what prophets are. And, and, uh, but that's really far from the biblical function and the biblical image of prophets. But Anna was a prophet and prophecy which it was really simply in biblical terms was they were the messages that that prophets delivered it was a way that god communicated to his people throughout biblical history a prophet was someone through whom god spoke They were a a messenger, and and their messages, the reason that they proclaimed these messages was in order to guide the people of God in the midst of specific situations, or it was to warn the people of God when they were going astray. Now, at times, prophets would predict events, and at other times, they would interpret events. But the aim of it was always so that the people receiving the message from the prophet would turn back to God and begin following God's paths and God's ways. The message of the prophet was never for their own benefit or for their own fame. It was always for the fame of God and for the glory of God. The Bible identifies a number of prophets in the Old and the New Testament, and entire books are given to prophetic words of certain prophets. Prophets uh, in the Old Testament, they include Moses and Daniel or Deborah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Joel. And in the New Testament, we see other prophets as well. John the Baptist is identified as a prophet. All of the apostles are identified as prophets. Paul, Silas, Agabus, Simeon, Lucius, and Anna are all identified in the New Testament as prophets. Jesus was also identified as a prophet. In Luke 24, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. But, but what do prophets do? One way to understand the work of prophets in the Bible is to locate the words of prophets into two categories. Um, and these are not unique to, to, to me or to us, but the two categories would be foretelling, as in foretelling the future, and forthtelling, as in forthtelling the truth. And with these two functions, uh, often we can get caught up in the spectacular of the foretelling, um, of, of predicting events. Namely because we want to know like what's going to happen in the future. Like, uh, you know, dear prophet, will the Capitals like repeat as Stanley Cup champions? Uh, and can you give me Powerball numbers for n- next week? Like, we're, so we sort of get caught up in the foretelling. But again, remember that the prophets' words are always meant to turn their hearers' hearts towards God, not towards themselves. Fourth telling of the prophets was the majority of the prophecies. And in this regard, it's not uh, the telling of the future, but actually the retelling of the past and the identification of the present. In the retelling of the past, the prophets would remind the people of God who God is and what he's done and what he's said, and who our identity is in him. The prophets would remind the children of God, you're you're God's children. You are chosen. You are the ones that God made. You are the ones that God loves, and you are the ones that God has rescued. They would always and ever remind them of things in the past. But they would also identify the present, and this is where the correction would come. The prophets would tell God's people, you've strayed from your identity. You've begun to worship other gods, gods who don't love you, who didn't make you, and who don't rescue you. You've become unfaithful. And in the Old Testament, the ways that the prophets are able to identify this unfaithfulness was most often because two things were present. One is the people of God began to worship other gods, other than the one true God. And two, they were neglecting the poor and widows, and they weren't caring for orphans, and they were mistreating strangers. And the words of the prophets were often hard and harsh and pointed, but their aim was always so that the people of God would return to the Lord, the one who loved them most. And many times, most times really, the people of God did not want to hear the prophet's words and they would reject them. But there were times Sometimes they would hear the love and the prophet's bitter rebuke and the people would relent of their infidelity to other gods. They would break from their callousness towards the poor and the stranger and they would return to walking in the ways of righteousness and justice. And the language of the Bible for this is that they would repent, that they would turn back to the God who loves them. And that's how the prophets behaved in the Bible. And the gifts that God gave um, his people in the Old Testament and the gifts that he gave his followers in the New Testament, they're gifts that he still gives today. Um, the, there are still prophets in our church today. In Paul's letters to the church in Ephesus in uh, Ephesians 4, uh, verse 11, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, among the gifts that Paul is identifying in Ephesians 4 are gifts that are given to the church, gifts like teaching and evangelism and shepherding, and included in there are prophetic gifts. And there are still prophets among us, prophets who are to foretell and to foretell. And while there may be less foretelling of the future, since because of Christ's completed work on the cross, there's still a deep need for foretelling of remembering what God has said and done in the past and a sober-eyed representation of where we are today and the convicting chasm that exists between where we are as the church and where we're supposed to be as the people of God. Now, the church still needs, desperately so, messengers who deliver a timely word to the church to remember who God is Messengers who would guide and who would warn. However, the thing is, uh, uh, there are times where the prophet's words, they're hard to hear because they rub and they chafe and and they they embarrass and they provoke because um, the prophet is identifying a gap between where the people of God are and where God wants them to be. The prophets point out that distance and that dissonance. And so the prophets, they're like, they can be like sandpaper. They rough off the edges that are grating away, and at rough edges until our souls are shaped into the beauty that God intends. There's some images uh, that we drew to sort of uh, communicate this. Prophets often live at the at the edges of a community of faith. It's because it's at that place where they can actually see the gap between where th- where the people of God are and where God is wanting them to go. And so they occupy sort of the outer edge of the church and they uh, can see backwards where the church is and they can see forward where God wants the church to be and they notice that difference. If you think back to the story of Deborah that Lisa preached um, last week, there was a pivotal moment where Deborah identified as a prophet, where she is seeing what needed to happen, and she reminds Barak of who God was and what God promised. In Judges 4, she says this, and Deborah said to Barak, "Up, For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go out before you? In Judges 4, she prophetically foretells that a woman would defeat Sisera, but she also prophetically foretells Barak that God is with him. This is the work of a prophet. However, there are also times where the prophets, they're, they're actually out ahead of uh, the church. They're actually out ahead of the community of faith, and they're calling the church forward. They're saying, listen, there's still a gap. There's still folks that have yet to hear the good news. There's still a gap between who we are and who God wants us to be. Come this way. There's a, there's a heart of care and of desire for the people of God to live into their identity as those dearly loved by God. This is like what John the Baptist was doing. He was running ahead, making a way, and inviting those who believed to come, too. There's a beckoning in this place, a hope that the prophet carries, that the people of God will step into the life that God offers in growing and deepening ways. And still there are other times where the words of the prophet, they're thorny and they're convicting and they're, and they're damning because the community of faith has become so hardened to sin and resistant to the wooing words of God that the community actually retreats from the prophet. And unfortunately, this actually happens most times to the church's great detriment. That where the prophet stands is hard for the church to hear and we move back and we retreat back from the prophet. And when this happens, it leaves the prophet isolated, and it leaves the church weaker. The church needs its prophets, and the prophet needs its church. The church is healthiest, is alive and on mission when the prophets are embraced when they're heated and embedded in the church, in the local church, because the chief aim of the prophet is to see the people of God on mission for God to the glory of God. The desire of the prophet is to see the bride of Christ faithful to the mission and the kingdom of Christ, and the prophets are on the leading edge of the kingdom's expansion. As Leslie Newbegin, the the great missionary and theologian would say the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is, on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. Now, a quick word about prophets, though, I say a quick word, I've been talking about them for 10 minutes now, um, is that the gift of prophecy needs maturity. Um, any of the gifts that God gives can be used in mature ways and they can be used in immature ways. So an example from my own life, not about prophetic gifts, but about teaching gifts. Now, I know that there's probably some debate in the room about whether or not I am reasonably gifted in the area of teaching. (laughs) Suspending that that conversation for a moment. And let me just say, I think it's it's a reasonable gift that I might have if I could be so humble, which feels weird now standing in front of you saying this as I'm... (laughs) Preaching and teaching. But I remember when I was, um, when I, <laughs> when I, f- I remember the first sermon I preached. It was terrible. It was on Moses. I don't remember what I said, but I remember it was on Moses. It was like eight minutes long. And I was like, wow, that was fast. Not too hard, really. And I think back about the ways when I was a, a young preacher and a young teacher, and there was aspects of immaturity, not, not lack of earnestness or try hard or any of it. I was just immature in the Lord and immature as a preacher and teacher, that I, that I needed for maturity to be stirred up. And when I think back about some of the stuff that I preached, goodness me. Um, when I came across this recently, uh, a friend of mine um, uh, from Fresno, David, uh, he posted on my Facebook wall about a sermon that I preached when we lived in Fresno, California. When we lived in Fresno, I was, um, uh, I was a, a lay pastor at Fresno First Baptist Church, and so I was on the teaching team, and so about four or five times a year I would preach. And uh, David posts um, about a sermon that I apparently, according to David, I preached in a costume. I have a, uh, I think I've got a snapshot of this um, from my Facebook wall. David writes, hey, brother... Uh, I love his brother. Uh, Dave's from Compton, and maybe that's how he wanted to greet me. I appreciate that, though. Um, Just thinking about you, I remember when I first heard you preach, you came out with a cape. (laughs) This sounds terrible. I don't remember this at all. Thanks be to God. I don't know what I was preaching. Please don't write First Baptist Fresno saying, hey, I'm looking for that tape ministry or the DVD of when Watson preached in a cape. And I'm like at my response. Hey, my man, uh, don't know why I started that way. Great to hear from you. A cape? Dang, what was I <laughs> thinking? Um, uh, and so just go on. And then Kevin McNeese, who I play, who doesn't, I, I played football with Kevin in Dallas when I was in high school. He chimes in a cape, like even he's like, what are you doing? Because the thing is, is however, in whatever ways that we're gifted, we're not, we may be gifted with that gift, but we're not gifted with maturity to use that gift immediately. There's ways that we have to grow into our giftings. And that's the same with prophecy and with prophets. Uh, one that is gifted with prophecy to either to, to be able to foretell or to foretell to the community of, of faith. With an immature prophet, sometimes they just come across, if I can be frank, as jerks. Because there's a measure of immaturity that's there. But we need not squash the gift It's right for us to listen, for us to come alongside and to cultivate and say, yeah, there's something else there. Maybe he came out with a cape, but there's still a measure of truth. Let us look through the costume and see what's really there. God bless him. God, please bless him, raise him. Uh, But let's listen for the truth that's found in it. Uh, You know, it may have been a fine sermon. I don't know. But I think that hopefully that I've matured a bit. Because that's the aim, that we are all mature followers of Christ. And prophets must, must grow in their faith as well. There's an ache that prophets have for the church, but there's an, there can be an immaturity in the ways that they communicate that ache. And what's required for the young prophets that are even in our midst is an ongoing time spent in the scriptures, ongoing time spent in prayer, ongoing time spent with the Holy Spirit, and time spent being discipled by more mature followers in Christ. But we must hear their voice. We must listen for them because they're messengers to us. And the church is healthiest and on mission when we listen well to the prophets among us. The aim of the prophet must always be To see the people of God turned back towards the love and fame and glory of God. Anna was a prophet. But she is also identified as a widow. She is a prophet and she is a widow. Verse 36, there was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. In the Greek, this, uh, the construct of this sentence actually is actually quite complicated. Um, uh, she lived with her husband seven years after marriage, and then a widow until she was 84. It's a little tricky because it's actually unclear if what Luke is saying is that she was a widow until she was 84, or if what he's saying is that she was a widow for 84 years. If it's the latter, then it means that Anna would have been 107 years old. Either way, whether it was 84 or 107, Anna is quite old and she has far outlived the life expectancy of the day. She has lived a long time as a widow. She never remarried and it doesn't appear that she had any children. In a patriarchal and patrilineal society, as was the Hebrew culture in the first century, in much of the ancient Near East, to be a widow was to be in a vulnerable situation. There was no male protector and little viable means of income. And so a widow was socially and economically defenseless. Destitution and poverty were always wolves at the door. Because of the defenseless position of widows, God constantly identifies as the protector and the provider for widows. And because God aligns himself with them, he calls his people. In the Old Testament, he calls Israel to be a people who care for the widows. And in the New Testament, Jesus demonstrates care for the widows and teaches caring for widows as the mark of those who follow him. And so, over and over throughout the Bible, God identifies with the poor uh, and the marginalized generally and widows specifically. And as such, God's invitation to his children is to likewise stand with those that are economically and socially defenseless, for those are consistently the marks of fidelity to God. Anna is an old widow woman. She's living her days in poverty, yet she is one to whom Jesus is brought. She is the one who identifies the child as the long-awaited savior because so, so often in God's story, the poor and the marginalized take center stage in moving redemption's story along. And this truth challenges those of us who are wealthy. It demands that we disarm ourselves of the ways that we view the poor with disgust or indifference. Father Greg Boyle is one of my heroes, though we've never met. Uh, I'm sure he uh, would love to meet me. Um, he spent the better part of his life living in the poorest parish in Los Angeles and serves at Mission Dolores in East L.A. Um, And he makes a point this way in his book, Tattoos on the Heart. He says that God calls us to see the poor with a compassion that can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than to stand in judgment at how they carry it. Let us see them and stand in awe with what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. Not only is Anna on the margins of society, she's on the margins physically. Luke notes that when Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to Simeon to be circumcised, which is where Anna finds them, that they're in the temple courts. Luke 2, verse 27, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, this is Simeon, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to him for him, what the, which is what the custom of the law required, they were in the temple courts. There are a few different temple courts in the temple, but given that Anna is there, it is most likely that they are in the women's court. And this court was just inside the walls of the temple, just past where the Gentiles could come, the non-Jews. But it was the farthest that women could actually travel into the temple. And they couldn't go any farther in where sacrifices were made. And they couldn't certainly go into the holiest parts of the temple. And so Anna is located socially on the edge of society, even her religious society. And Anna, uh, at every turn, is on the margin, and yet here she is, inviting us into the story that God is writing. Here in the women's court, on the outer edges of the temple, it is here where Anna met Jesus. And it is on the edges that she welcomes all of us to stand with her and to meet Christ on the prophetic margins. Again, Father Boyle's words echo echo Anna's invitation, an invitation to move ourselves closer to the margins so that the margins themselves will be erased, that we stand there with those whose dignity has been denied. We locate ourselves with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless at the edges. We join the easily despised and the readily left out. We stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop. We situate ourselves right next to the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. Why? Why do we do this? Why ought we work our way to stand in the margins of our world and with the marginalized? Because we're compassionate, because we're good people, because we care about the poor or justice. While those are noble and good, that's not the primary reason. We move there because Jesus has revealed himself ever and always in those places. And if we want to be with Christ, if we want to know him and know what he's like, then we have to find ourselves in the places where he would be found. And he consistently reveals himself to those on the margins. He was born to an unwed teenage mother he was first announced to shepherds those on the low end of the social ladder he was first announced to foreign intellectuals that came from the east and then he was first presented to an old widow woman in the women's court in the temple if we want to be close to Christ then we have to move to the margins Anna was a prophet and she was a widow And lastly, she is a faithful witness. She's a faithful witness. Luke finishes out his description of Anna in Luke 2 by saying in verse 37, she never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment, coming up to Jesus and Joseph and Mary. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child. So all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Luke identifies four spiritual practices that uh, characterize Anna's life and faith. Luke notes that Anna, uh, she worships, she fasts, she prays, and she testifies. Anna never left the temple. She, She worshiped. She, she knew uh, who she belonged to. She knew who loved her, who made her, and who rescued her. She was a worshiper night and day, despite her circumstances, despite the world around her and the ample reasons she had to disbelief, the reasons that she had to slip into bitterness or anger or resentment. She maintained a posture of worship in the temple. She lifted her hands and her voice to the God who saves. If we're going to stand with Anna, then we are to stand as worshipers, as those who realize that we have been made by God and loved by God and rescued by God in Christ Jesus, and that our our right response is to worship, is to sing out, to proclaim out, to voice out, and to live out that our God saves. Anna fasted. She carved out time in her life, even as an older woman, to go without food or other things that her body craved so as to focus her mind and her heart, her soul, and her body and will on the things of God. She took time to let the hunger pains that come in the midst of a fast remind her that God is the one that satisfies, that God is the one who provides, that he's provided in the past and he's going to provide in the future. And so Anna fasted. She fasted to remember that though things are hard now, we won't always be hungry for food or drink or justice or freedom. And Anna prayed. She prayed. I suspect this woman prayed for for earth-shattering, world-changing, world-shattering things. And I suspect she prayed for things that were also mundane and ordinary. She was a woman who realized that there's nothing too big or too grand to lift up to God. And she also realized there's nothing too small that God doesn't want to know about. And So she prayed. She called out all the time to a God who hears our prayers. She prayed for people she cared about. I suspect she prayed for an end to Roman occupation, and she prayed for the Messiah to come. Finally, she testified. She spoke about the child. The verse says she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem, to all of those who ate for the world to be remade, for the kingdom to come. She testified to that. She said, listen, Jesus has come. He's here. I've seen him. A new kingdom is in breaking. She told those who would listen that Jesus was the one who saves. She told those that already knew Joseph, Mary, Simeon. She told them. (laughs) I mean, they're there. She's like, hey, by the way, I know he's your kid, but I just want you to know, in case you didn't, this is the Messiah. We've all been waiting for him. Thanks you for bringing him here. I want to tell you, I'm going to tell some other people too, but I'm going to tell you that the Messiah is here just in case it needed a reminder. She told others that weren't present, hey, I don't know where you were today, but let me tell you where I was, and this is who I met, and this is who I saw, and guess what? The kingdom is in breaking. Jesus is here. If we're to listen to our foremother, Anna, then we are to be a people likewise who worship and who fast. Who groan for the kingdom, who pray for things, for things big, for mountains that it seems there's no way for them to move, and also for smaller things. God, help me have favor with my neighbor. God, I have a headache today. Lord, I'm anxious and I don't know why. Can the capitals repeat next year? And we're to testify. There are those all around us who ache and who groan, and they may not have language or words for it, but you do. And they need your testimony. They need your voice to to be the messengers of God, to say, listen, Christ has come. Salvation is at hand, and it's for you. Just as Anna invites us to the margins, she also invites us to live a life formed by God's spirit through worship, fasting, prayer, and proclamation. She calls us to worship the one who made us and who loves us. And it calls us to fast, to turn our hearts and our appetites Godward in order to see God stir in us a determination to faithfully follow Christ. She calls us to pray, not just think about things in our minds, but to actually converse with God, to talk to him and to listen to him, to grow in our acquaintance with his voice, and she calls us to bear witness to who Jesus is. And she invites us to use our voice in order to tell, in order to tell others of the good news. So just to finish out, what, what part of Anna's story resonates with you? What is God reminding you of and what is he calling you towards? Let us hear well from Anna's story and let us respond rightly in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. God would you would you move in us would you would you stir in us the passion the consistency the, the 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 persistence of anna God would we be a people that would get as close as we can to your presence always wanting more and we would people that we would be a people that identify with folks on the margins not because we're motivated by our own self righteousness but because We see that that's what you do. And we want to walk in your ways, Lord Jesus. We want to be your disciples. And God, we want to be a people that respond with worship. That never get too far away from prayer and from fasting, of placing ourselves in positions of desperation to reach out and call out to you. And God, we want to be a people that bear witness to life that is truly life and is found in Christ. Father, let us be faithful stewards of Anna's story and her influence in our life. Even as we're faithful stewards, God, of, of Martilla Minor's legacy and a building named after her. Lord, let us hear well from our foremothers, even as they, even as they prophesy to us Generations removed. Let us respond. Holy Spirit, let us
0: respond well. Amen.